2,000 years ago, the apostles were activated by the Holy Spirit while the enemy did its best to stop the message of Jesus from spreading. But instead, the word of Jesus spread to the ends of the earth. God expanded their understanding of Jesus's ministry and turned their expectations upside down. Today, the same spirit leads us. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Peter saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Meanwhile, a centurion named Cornelius sent his men to ask Peter to come to his house. Upon arriving at Cornelius's house, Cornelius said to Peter, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me. Cornelius. God has heard your prayer. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. While in Athens, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.
Hey, everybody. So that was a great scripture mashup of basically all of the passages that we've been looking at as we've been in this series on the book of Acts that we're calling Activated. And uh, so we're wrapping up that series this morning. And uh, so just by way of definition, activate, to activate means to make active or uh, to make operational, to make active or to make operational. So the book of Acts is the story of how Jesus' followers began to spread the good news of Jesus out throughout the whole world. They became activated. It started, if you recall the story, it started in Jerusalem with about 120 Christ followers who were praying together when the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit came down on them and they ran out and began to spread the word uh, throughout the streets of Jerusalem and in one day 3,000 people came to faith. And we're told that every day after that, more and more people were coming to faith. And sometime in that time period, a persecution against these believers broke out. In the hopes, I'm sure, that it would deactivate them from doing what they were doing, from spreading the gospel and telling people about Jesus. But just the opposite happened. They left Jerusalem, but they took with them the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and began to share it with others. The other thing that began to happen was that new leaders began to grow uh, in this movement as well. So it was no longer just the 12 um, apostles that Jesus had appointed to be his disciples. It was no longer just those 12, but now it was a growing number of new leaders uh, who were sharing this good news uh, with everybody, everywhere throughout the Roman Empire. Both Jews and Gentiles are beginning to accept Jesus. The message that these believers brought into the world was the simple and yet profound message that Jesus, this thing is, sorry, driving me crazy. I've got a lot of technology. I don't know if you've noticed that got a thing on my hand, I've got a computer here, I've got an iPad here, I've got a thing in my ear, cameras. It's a lot of technology, and I'm not a tech guy. Am I? Yes. Good, thanks. Wow, all right, does it sound that desperate? <laughs> all right, so they're bringing this message. So what's the message that they're bringing? They're bringing the message that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that in him, we find forgiveness for our sins. And because of that, a new relationship with the living God. That Jesus gives meaning and purpose to our lives, and he gives the hope and the promise of an everlasting life. Jesus didn't come to reform Judaism, nor did he come to repudiate it. He came to bring fulfillment, that the promise that God had made to the Jews to be a light to the world was now being fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. And so these activated 
disciples began to spread the good news everywhere and to everyone. So, throughout Acts, we see um, people accepting this good news, whose lives are being changed, and who are growing in their faith. So we see that throughout the story. And at the same time, almost parallel, we see rejection and persecution of these very same people. So this morning I want to look at two chapters from Acts, just a little section of each, uh, for, uh, chapter 14 and chapter 17. And so chapter 14, verse 1, begins by saying this. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual, to the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. All right? So here we see new leaders, right? So it's not one of the uh, disciples. It's now this guy named Paul. And he's a very different kind of leader, a very different kind of person than those that Jesus had picked originally, Paul is a scholar. He's a brilliant man, and he is a Pharisee. And so his methodology of reaching people was to go directly to the Jewish people in their synagogues. And because he was a learned scholarly guy with the credential of being a Pharisee, when he would go into a synagogue, he was given the privilege of speaking to the people. And he would there tell them about Jesus and using the, their scriptures, using uh, the Torah, point to the fact that Jesus, everything about him, everything he said, everything he did, pointed to the reality of the fact that he was the Messiah and that he was resurrected from the dead. So we see in 14.1 that Jesus, uh, that, uh, uh, good old, what's his name? Paul. <laughs> Paul uh, goes into the temple and speaks so effectively that a large number of people come to faith. Verse 2, the very next verse, says that those who didn't believe, who refused to believe, who rejected what Paul was saying, began their opposition, and they were stirring up people against them. So what do Paul and Barnabas do? They decide, we're going to stay longer. We have to convince more people that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And so they stay, and they're teaching and so forth, but the opposition leaders are becoming more and more irritated and aggravated with these two, and they begin to plan violence against Paul and Barnabas. Here's something that was true 2,000 years ago that's still true today. And it's this, that ignorance and fear are the kindling to fuel the flames of violence. Ignorance and fear are the kindling used to fuel the fires of violence. Over and over, we see 
this pattern in the book of Acts. A group of Christ followers come into a village, a town, a city, begin to share the good news about Jesus. People begin to accept it. They begin to learn about it and grow in it. They form little house churches and uh, invite neighbors and so forth, and so it begins to grow. And at the same time, there is an opposition that is so fearful and ignorant of what's going on that they act in violent ways. What's a different way of dealing with our own ignorance and our own fears? Jesus gave to his followers a better way. He said that rather than ignorance, that the truth shall make us free. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Jesus also said, and I am the truth. So as Christ followers, we're not just interested in the truth about... <laughs> Man. All right. We're good. I don't know why it's bothering me today. I'm just going to hold it right here. So it's not just... <laughs> Poor tech guys, they're thinking, I would love to go help that poor guy, but there's nothing you can do. I'm fine. Um, yeah, so we don't, we have this truth. Not just the truth about Jesus, but the truth of Jesus. And as we know the truth of Jesus, it sets us free. We no longer live in ignorance about how to deal with things that cause us fear, things that are confusing, things that we don't know what to do with. That you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. See, we have not a religion about Jesus. We have a relationship with Jesus. So how do you know the truth of Jesus? And one of the things I would recommend is that if you haven't done this ever, or if it's been a while, I would really encourage you, this week, go to the Gospels, go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and read Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And after you've read it, read it again. And the stuff that you're reading that you're not sure about, don't just gloss over it, but dig down into it. Jesus taught us the truth about who we are, about who God is, about himself. And the more we know and understand the truth, the freer that we become. When it comes to fear, Jesus said, perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. So the more we love, the more we grow in love, and I'm not talking about the um, romantic love, of course. I'm talking about the nature of godly love, this kind of sacrificial concern for and interest in others. 
as we grow in our capacity to love, our fear diminishes. Our fears of others, our fears about the future, all of those fears that can fuel anger and ultimately violence. So the good news of Jesus spread and people heard it and they began to have great effect. And I think the reason that it spread so widely and had such a deep impact was because Jesus' followers were speaking this truth and doing it in ways that exemplified genuine love. And so because of these things, the faith began to grow. So in Acts chapter 14, we see it was predominantly about the gospel being shared with Jewish people. In 17, it speaks primarily to Greek people. So in chapter 17, we see Paul, he is in the city of Athens. And as he's walking around the city, uh, it's describing the city. And it's these great temples to all of these various gods and statues to all of these various gods all over the city of Athens. In fact, there are so many that there is even, we're told, an altar that was created for an unknown god. Just to make sure we've covered all the bases... There is an altar to an unknown God. And so Paul does what he always does. There in Athens, there was, a, um, there was a synagogue. And so Paul goes into the synagogue, and he's teaching in the synagogue about Jesus. Now, Athens, the other thing about Athens is it was this place of um, intellectual endeavors, it was a place where the great philosophies and philosophers of the day would come and share their ideas and debate these ideas and so forth. So it was this intellectual hub. So Paul goes into the synagogue. He shares about Jesus. Word gets out about this kind of new, strange religion, philosophy. We're not sure. And so some of the leaders from Athens find Paul, and they invite him to come and come into an arena there and speak. It's sort of like he got, in modern parlance, it's kind of like he got invited to do a TED Talk, right? So he comes into this center, and he is going to speak to the people of Athens, thousands of people in this arena, about Jesus. And so Paul addresses the things he sees in the culture, he says things like, you know, it's obvious to me that you people are very religious. You obviously have a deep interest in the things of God and want to know about those things. He talked about their monuments, you know, and, and all of these uh, idols that they have or statues and even references this altar to the unknown God. In his talk... He quotes some of their poetry and their philosophers. What he didn't do was condemn them for their idols 
were there misguided philosophies? Now remember, he is a learned Jewish scholar. I'm sure he was overwhelmed and maybe it was abhorrent to him to see all of these idols throughout Athens. And yet, he didn't make that a part of his talk when he talked to these folks. What Paul did was he began where the people were. And then he leads them to Jesus. He spoke in respectful ways, aware of their understanding of spirituality, and he spoke in a culturally competent kind of way. And as he speaks about Jesus, Paul goes through the story of who Jesus is and gets to the point of talking about Jesus' resurrection. All right? And so this is what happens at that point in this talk that he gives. So it's chapter 17, verse 32. It says this. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, uh, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So Paul is speaking about Jesus and because he did it in the ways that he did it, people were able to hear. They weren't distracted because he was attacking their culture or he was um, speaking down about their culture. He focused his message on the truth of who Jesus was and people heard it and many responded. And just as importantly, there was a door left open. They wanted to hear more about Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. It's an amazing thing, right? So the question for us, for our day, is how are we an activated church? How are we an activated church? Many experts in the field of sociology, including those uh, who have a Christian uh, perspective, say that in America we are living in a post-Christian era. That Christianity is no longer the dominant religion or the dominant social force in our country. And this makes a lot of people fearful. So what do we do with our fear. How do we respond? How do we respond with our fear? I heard a story from a pastor recently, pastor of a mega church, a large church, and he was speaking to someone who was an expert in fundraising and asking, you know, how he could uh, inspire greater generosity from his people. And this 
fundraiser who works with churches said that the two things that motivate the most giving, financial giving, the two motivating factors are fear and anger. And so his recommendation to this pastor was, you need to stoke more fear and more anger in your people. Now, that's shocking, but not really. I mean, political pundits have known this forever. If you want to raise money, you have to stoke people's fear and anger. And so it's no wonder that there is growing violence. So the question is, what about our own fear or anger? What do we do with it? I think the first thing is love, right? In every situation that you find yourself in, where you find yourself getting fearful, our question should be, what does love require of me? And then do it. What does love require of me? In this situation, I'm feeling angry, I'm feeling agitated, I'm scared. What does love require of me? And then to do it. We also need to understand the culture in which we live in. If we're in a post-Christian culture, why would we expect people to act like Christians? That doesn't excuse us from acting like Christians. That doesn't give us permission to act like the dominant culture. But we do need to understand the culture so that we can speak truth effectively into that culture, just like Paul did when he was in Athens. To not rail against the culture and bemoan the culture and so forth, but to understand it in deeper ways so that we can bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus, into the culture in which we live. The other thing is, it's not just what we say that matters, but where we say it. Okay. Where do you find yourself in the course of an average week? Work, community, whatever those activities are, and for, a, a, for many of us, online. Right? So how do we speak into that culture? Because online, as Pastor Rick shared with us not too long ago, online is a culture, right? There's a culture online. How do you bring your voice into that online culture? I'm not talking about just us with a, you know, an online worship service. I'm talking about your use of social media. What is your voice that you bring in to social media? And what's the message that you bring? How do you bring a message of love and truth into that? And again, it's not just quoting scriptures or uh, those kinds of things, but, but we can bring um, a sense of truth and love into our interactions, including those online. 
So an activated church, I believe, is the greatest force for good in the world. I truly believe that. I believe that the local church, when it's activated, the ways that we see it in the book of Acts, is the greatest force for good in the world today. And what's required to have an activated church is to have activated people. Because the church is, you know, the people. It's not a building. It's not an institution. It's not just an organization. It's men and women, boys and girls, who come together to be the church. And so my prayer for us, Hope Church, is that we will be an activated church. A church that is finding the freedom through the truth of Jesus as we live in relationship with him. And that we bring that into our relationships with each other. And that we act in ways that are genuinely loving toward each other. And that we go out into the world to be that force for good in a world and in a culture that's increasingly motivated by ignorance and fear. We have the antidote. Truth and love. Hey, would you pray with me? So Lord, thank you for your church. Men and women who have been inspired by the gospel and who come together to be in community with one another, to be encouraged and to encourage, to be inspired and to inspire, to serve and be served, to grow and to support others in their growth. I thank you for your church and how your church has been a force for good for 2,000 years. Lord, I pray that this church, this hope community, would be among that great cloud of witnesses that live your truth and that share it in ways that have great impact on the people around us. All that, Lord, can only happen as we trust you. It's beyond our ability, and so we look to you, Lord, to be our strength, to be our counselor, to be our guide, and to be our peace. And we'll give you the thanks and the praise always and in all ways. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen. Amen. Hey, have a great week. Lord bless you guys.